let me give you a scenario. The year is 200 AD. And there are two travelers, one from the north and one from the south, that have come to Jerusalem. And they are traveling separately. They arrive at Jerusalem. Um, they sit down at a bench, being strangers to one another, and one opens up his bag and pulls out the Gospel of Mark. And the fellow sitting on the bench next to him looks over and he sees, that guy's got the Gospel of Mark, I've got the Gospel of Mark. And the guy says, hey, we're Christians here, we're reading the same book, it appears. The guy from the north says, yeah, I had this idea a while back that I would travel to Jerusalem, take the Gospel of Mark with me, and work through all the different places that Jesus had ministered, and I would be reading Mark along the way. And here I am today at Golgotha, reading about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the other guy says, what do you know? That's me too. I had the same exact idea Brought the gospel of Mark. I've worked my way from north to south into Jerusalem. And I'm at chapter 15 as well, studying the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, the guy from the south says, I've got an idea. Since we're here together, how about I give you the freedom to just soak in this sight while I read the account of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Guy from the north says, that's a great idea. Thanks for offering that. So the fellow from the south, reading from his Gospel of Mark, starts reading through chapter 15. There they are at Golgotha. Goes through the account of Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman centurion, all of that. And he moves seamlessly into chapter 16. Keep in mind they didn't have chapters and verses back then. And he gets to chapter 16, recounts, reads the, the details of the resurrection, and he gets to verse 8, and he reads verse 8, which is, And they went out and fled from the tomb. This is the women. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And he closes up his Bible and just sits there reflectively as his friend is soaking in the sights. And he says, Our Savior is risen. May we respond with the right kind of confidence and worship that he deserves. The guy from the north, he's standing there and he says, well, what about the rest of Mark? And the guy from the south says, the rest of what? Well, the rest of Mark. The guy from the south says, what are you talking about? There is no more to Mark. The guy from the north says, what are you talking about? There's another 12 verses to Mark. And then the reader from the south says, not in my Bible. All right. That's where we find ourselves in Mark 16. And I need to do some teaching on this for you concerning the ending of Mark. We're going to do that for about 20 minutes. I think it's better for you to hear it from me than an atheist who is seeking to debunk the Bible. After we get through that section, we're going to do a recap of Mark and we'll be done. Okay. So, what are we supposed to do with the ending of Mark? There are these 12 verses located at the end of chapter 16. Verse 8 talks about the women, um, the women who were at the tomb, and they just see the empty tomb, and that's it. 
the end of chapter 8. Um, you've got this section in verses 9 through 20, along with, and I'm not going to address this in detail today, the section in John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery where Jesus draws the line in the sand and says, you who are without guilt, cast the first stone. That's for another study when we get to John someday, but this will be in the same vein. You've got these two passages of scripture that have been asked about for centuries whether or not they are the inspired word of God or whether or not a copyist or scribe felt as though it needed to be inserted. There is a science that's called textual criticism. Textual criticism studies the ancient manuscripts and texts of the Bible. It seeks to answer questions like, when was this ancient script or papyrus written? Who's the author that wrote these original words. Where was this script written? Was it written in the South, copied in the South, North Africa? Was it copied up in Europe? Was it copied in the area of Israel? The primary concern with this science is trying to get back to what is the original document. So let me give you an example. If a copy of the Declaration of Independence is found in a cave in the Poconos of Pennsylvania, and in that cave there is a chest, an old chest, inside is a coin that's dated 1809, and inside of it is a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Somebody stumbles into the cave, brings it out, says, hey, this is a great find, takes it to historians, archaeologists at a local university. They open this up. They start reading the Declaration of Independence. And they see that, wow, there are a lot of, you know, consistent copies of the Declaration of Independence. However, what's interesting is the author's signature at the bottom is not John Hancock. It's John Hancock. And Benjamin Franklin, it's not Benjamin Franklin, it's Aretha Franklin or something like that. All right, so the scientists can look at this and they can say, well, we know that this document inside this chest must have come at least in 1809 or after because that coin was in there that was dated to 1809. And we have the original copy of the Declaration of Independence in D.C., so let's take this copy, bring it over to the original, and see what is true to the original. Oh, it's not John Hancock, it's John Hancock. And it's not Aretha, it's Benjamin. There's differences here, but the declaration and the text itself lines up, and wow, what, what a very good copy of the original. Something like that is happening with Mark 16. The majority of scholars on both sides there are liberal scholars who are looking at the Bible as just an ancient text and trying to study it from that lens. And then there are what we would call conservative evangelical scholars who are going to, like if you will, die for the Bible. They're seeking to defend it. Both sides are agreeing on this and agreeing that Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, as they study the manuscripts throughout the centuries, they are agreeing that it is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, this is nothing new to scholars today. 
You need to know that the ending, verses 9 through 20, has been a subject of debate that goes all the way back to the second and third century. Let me walk with this, walk you through this. Two men, uh, mostly from modern day Europe, Irenaeus and Tatian, uh, these guys were born in the second century, 130 and 120 AD. These men are living in Europe. They would have had access to the Greek family of texts in the European area. Some believe that these Greek texts were called the Byzantine texts, and I say that because Byzantine texts didn't actually get labeled until about the third or fourth century. These men, Irenaeus and Tatian, are very well aware that there is a speculative ending to the book of Mark. You can find that in their writings. There's other church fathers, North Africa, Clement and Origen. There's another Greek family text, a family of Greek texts, the Alexandrian texts in Egypt. Clement is born in 150, Origen is born in 185, again, leading scholars and theologians in the early church. In their writings, they express no understanding or no awareness of verses 9 through 20. The oldest texts that we have are believed to be the Alexandrian texts, not the texts from Europe, the Byzantine texts. And so as the scholars are looking at this, they're even talking about it in the third century, a man by the name of Eusebius of Caesarea, living in modern-day Israel, who would have had access to the northern texts up in Europe to compare them to the southern texts down in North Africa. Here's what he says. He says, the accurate ones of the copies define the end of the history according to Mark at chapter 16, verse 8. Now, they didn't have chapters and verses, so that's included, but at that verse. In this way, the ending of the gospel according to Mark is defined in nearly all the copies. So here's Eusebius, born in 265 AD, able to compare the northern, able to compare southern texts, and he's saying at that time that nearly all of the copies, the majority of copies that he has access to, do not include the ending of verses 9 through 20. Now, most of your Bibles that you hold in your hand today suggest, humbly suggest, that the ending of Mark should be at chapter 16, verse 8. If you're carrying an ESV, here's what it says. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. The New American Standard says it this way, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. If you're carrying the NIV, the NIV says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. The New English translation includes this in the footnotes. All of this evidence indicates that as time went on, scribes added the longer ending, either for the richness of its material or because of the abruptness of the ending at verse 8. Your New King James Version says, verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the NU, which is a Greek translation, as not in the original text. 
They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, which are texts that were believed to be around the 300-400 era, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. Now, I could go down a long list of scholars who would say what I've just said, and they could say it with much more authority. I'm not, I would not consider myself an authority on this, but let me just give you two scholarly uh, gentlemen here who run in this vein. They're evangelicals. They're committed to the text, the sufficiency of scripture. Dan Wallace and James White. If you want to Google them this afternoon, you can look at their material that they've written, listen to podcasts. Both have engaged in scholarly debates against skeptics. Dan Wallace is from Dallas Theological Seminary. James White is a Reformed Baptist. I believe he's out of Arizona. Again, both hold to the truthfulness, the sufficiency, the authority, the inerrancy, the inspiration of Scripture. And they come to the conclusion, based on their studies, that verses 9 through 20 are not in the text. Now, let me go from there, from names that you might not be familiar with, to names that you would be familiar with. And I used these names a couple of months ago because you listened to their radio ministries. You've got Alistair Begg on Truth For Life, and then John MacArthur, who's uh, Grace To You Ministries. So here's what Alistair Begg has to say about, his, um, about this passage. Mark ends his gospel at verse 8, and he does so purposefully. Begg goes on to say, I don't do that in just a cavalier fashion. This kind of ending fits with Mark's pace and his pattern. And there's John MacArthur in just his MacArthur-esque kind of way. So what have we got here? We've got a patchwork collage that some early folks felt needed to be thrown together, all of which is scriptural in the sense that he's saying you can find this stuff throughout scripture, with the exception of the kind of bizarre stuff about signs, in an attempt to help Mark get a better ending. Frankly, I think it's a bad ending. We have all that information. It's all kind of disjointed here, and I like Mark's ending. All right, so I include those because, again, you know that those gentlemen are committed to the Word of God, and yet this is one of those passages that you get to in seminary, and you start having all kinds of talks about it because it is in this book here. Now, I like how James White says it to Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a skeptic about the Bible. Bart Ehrman is trying to undermine the truthfulness and the the accuracy of the Bible. And James White says, we have all of the Bible right here. We have everything that God wants to say to us right here. It's that we have a little more as well in verses 9 through 20 and the passage in John chapter 8. Okay, a little bit about textual criticism. How has this worked over the centuries? Uh, From the very beginning where the apostles were writing down the words of God, copyists were right on their heels writing down in very careful and accurate ways the texts that the apostles had written down. 
these copies then would get passed on to the next copies and scribes. And if you will, it's kind of like a tree. From the very top, here's the Apostle Mark writing his letter. And then out from here, here are copyists and, and scribes at stage one, if you will. They pass it down to the next level. And here's exponentially more that copy it and send it down to the next level. Throughout the centuries, these archaeologists and biblical scientists, if I can call them that, have collected over 5,800 different fragments, scraps, books, copies of the New Testament from ancient times. And the earliest one that we have goes back to just 50 years after the last author of Scripture would have written. So they, they're, they're tracing them throughout the centuries as close as they can all the way back to the original writings. Now, just so you know, there are no original writings that the apostles wrote that we have today. None of them survived. And I can't help but think that God did that on purpose, probably so that they wouldn't become icons and worshipped somewhere. But what we have are these fragments and pieces of copies and there's over 5,800 of these ancient pieces that are collected in, in museums or in places where scholarly work is done. And of those 5,800 pieces, 99.5% of them agree altogether. The differences among them that you'll hear about are things like a change of the proper name to the pronoun. So for example, John the Baptist went down to the river to baptize people. A difference might be, he went down to the river to baptize people. Or another difference might be, John the Baptist went down to the river to baptize them. Nothing doctrinally changes in all of this. It's that a scribe at tier two or tier three or tier four may have heard something or thought something and all of a sudden is inserting something different and it continues down in that section of the tree and they're able to compare all of these manuscripts with one another and be 99.5% accurate about what was written in the original text. Now, what I've just given to you with the church fathers with manuscript evidence is what is called external evidence for Mark 16 and then this ending here. There's also what's called internal evidence as well. Internal evidence is where we look at the text itself and ask, is this consistent with the author's writing? The argument is, when you get to verses 9 through 20, and I don't know if you caught this when Josh is writing the, reading this, all of a sudden it feels like Mark makes this weird right-hand turn. It's not typical of Mark's language up to this point. Here are a few internal evidences that are suggesting that this is not Mark's writing. Number one is, in this section of verses 9 through 20, there are 15 new vocabulary words that Mark has not used up to this point. So he's 98% of the way done with his book. And in landing the plane, it's unusual for an author to bring in new words that he hasn't already used or that he would have to explain. It's not consistent with his style. The second internal evidence suggesting that this is not part of the, the Bible is that Mary is introduced now in a usual, unusual way. Mark introduces her now in verse 9, or I should say, 
whoever did this, is introducing Mary as the one whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. We've met Mary already. What would be typical for an author is to give that account of Mary the first time we meet her, not the last time we meet her. Third, the teaching on handling snakes and drinking poison and speaking in tongues is foreign to Mark's Gospels and the other Gospels. Is it foreign to all of Scripture? Well, you have Paul reaching into the sticks and pulling his hand out, and there's an asp that has attached itself to his hand. He shakes the snake off, and he survives the snake bite. That's in the book of Acts. You don't have any accounts of Christians in Acts or the rest of the Gospels drinking poison and surviving. There is extra biblical stories that talk about Christians being persecuted, and specifically one where this individual drank poison, survived it. This could have been in the first century. Of course, you've got the language about tongues that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. You see that in Acts chapter 2. So there's There's some of this that comes later, but not in the Gospels up to this point. So the internal evidence is leaning against 9 through 20 being part of God's inspired word. So if it's not supposed to be included, what are the ideas as to how it got in there? Let me suggest a few to you. Number one is this. Mark is living around the time of Nero, He's getting persecuted, the church in Rome, whom this is going to. Mark very well could have been in Rome talking with Peter, writing down everything that Peter had given to him. One of the suggestions is that while Mark is writing this, the persecution comes very literally. He only finishes verse 8, but had intentions to go a little bit further. So somebody comes along and says, hey, Mark told me what he wanted to include, so I've just written it down for him. That's one suggestion. Another suggestion is that Mark's last page, very literally here, page, was torn away like the back of a book cover that's been stuffed into a locker, and the outer covers you know, are the first ones to take the beating. Dan Wallace comes along and says, It's very, very, very unlikely that the codex, which is the original form of book, was really being used by Mark. More than likely, what Mark was using was a scroll. And the way a scroll works is that it opens all the way up. The author writes from beginning all the way to end. And then the end point over here gets rolled up in the very middle of the scroll which actually is protected the most. So if anything, it would be the beginning on the outer side of that scroll that would be torn off, not the very end, which is located in the very center of it. Okay, but it did end up in our King James Bible. So a little history on this. Erasmus is writing his Greek text in the year 1515 or so. His writings, his scholarly work, includes comments and notes about this additional ending, you know, being inserted into the the Greek texts. He knows that it's up for debate here. So he writes his Greek text. He includes the additional ending in his Greek text. That's 1515. 
About 100 years later, 1611, King James is on the throne, and he wants a Bible printed in English. They're going to use Erasmus's Greek text as basically the backdrop translating from English into, or from Greek into the English language. And so what the authors do is they include 9 through 20, and they do not include the footnotes that Erasmus has in his work about this being a possible inclusion. That's 1611. That's the King James, quote-unquote, authorized version. From then on, the English-speaking world for the next 350 years or so is for the majority of, of us, we're holding a King James. I mean, that's where I was back in the mid-80s. Most of our churches were still holding a King James, and the King James did not include any of the footnotes at all. Then along comes... If you will, at the turn of the 1900s, liberalism is creeping into the church. They're denying the inerrancy of Scripture. They're denying the, denying the sufficiency of Scripture, denying the virgin birth, den denying the deity of Christ, all of these things, and they're poking holes at the Bible. Now, you take that, which was a terrible movement over here. You've got the King James that doesn't include the footnotes, but then you have conservative scholars that are looking at the family line of texts all along the way saying, uh <clears throat> We don't think that this is an accurate translation, yet if they speak up, whom do they sound like? The liberals over here that are tearing apart the scriptures. So really, this hasn't been much talked about, if you will, in our circles, because our circles have been largely built on, if you will, over the last three and a half centuries on the King James Version. But remember, the King James Version built on Erasmus' text, Erasmus has, in his footnotes, this is a questionable ending. You keep going back further and further. You go back to Eusebius. Eusebius is saying back then, the majority of texts don't include it. You go back to the guys in North Africa, and they have no awareness that it's even there. So it's my humble opinion that verses 9 through 20 are not there. We have the word of God and we have something extra here. If we do have 9 through 20 as part of the authorized, if you will, the authority of scripture, the inerrant word of God, let me suggest we should start handling snakes. And that's why in Appalachia today, you can Google this where snake handling in Baptist churches in Appalachia and if you're a visitor with us, that's not the kind of Baptist that we are, okay? <laughs> All right, so it's been included in our Bible. It's noted now. You can wrestle with it, but I'm humbly suggesting that this passage and when you get to John chapter 8, you're going to have to do the same kind of wrestling there. But again, let me finish this section with where I started. I would rather have you hear it from me than a skeptic, an atheist, a liberal university professor trying to undermine your faith. Now, where do we stand on the scriptures? Four points of where we stand on the scriptures. Number one, we affirm the inspiration of scriptures. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 15, 16, I should say, 
All scripture is breathed out by God. So the words of God that we have as the Bible are the words of God that the author, like God is saying, I want you to know they've come from my mouth and that's the best way that he can put it. They've come from God. We have God's word. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's from God. Second, we believe in God's sovereign preservation of Scripture. Mark 13, verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God is going to keep his word for us. Yes, he's going to keep his promises to us, and he's going to keep his word for us. Third, we affirm the authority of Scripture. Again, going back to 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So this is the authority. Like God's going to tell us what we need to be doing. It comes from him. And then fourth, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Meaning God has given us a complete revelation for life and how to trust and obey him. We have everything that we need in the word of God. Now when you think about those four affirmations, what do those four affirmations have in common? All of these doctrines are rooted in God himself. And God desires that we would know him. God is not hiding secretly. I used to think, what if I die, get to heaven, having believed what God has written in his word, and I stand before God and he says something like, sorry, you know, you didn't find the extra gospel that was needed or the extra step for the gospel that was needed in a cave somewhere in the Middle East. It was hiding all along. Is God that kind of individual who tries to hide the truth from his people? Not at all. He is the God who reveals himself. And we see this as his character throughout scripture. He speaks, the world comes into existence. We can see what he's spoken. We can hear what he's spoken. We can read what he's spoken. He comes to Adam from the very beginning and speaks. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what I'm giving to you. He comes to Moses and Israel and gives them all of the law that is needed. He comes to Israel through the prophets. He comes to the church through the apostles and so forth. God is continually revealing himself because he desires to be made known. He wills to be made known and he wills to be made known through his scripture here. So it's the nature of God to not hide the truth from us, but to give us the truth so that we might know him. And that's why we gather week after week around the word of God and study it together. We want to know what God has said in his word. And so specifically, we've been studying Mark for the past year, if you're joining us today for the first time. And we have seen once again that God was kindly communicating to us through Mark and through his son, who is the incarnation, who is the ultimate reveal of God himself. And so now for just the last section of the sermon, let's get a reminder of what God has told us through the gospel of Mark. Here's a wrap up on Mark here. 
If I could give you one statement, I didn't put it on the screen this morning. Here is one kind of extended statement that I want you to be able to take away from the Gospel of Mark. We should be confident that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who paid our ransom at the cross, who is risen and is exercising kingdom rule. Now that's a lot right there, but I was trying to gather in all of the things that we've learned from Mark. We should be confident that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who paid our ransom at the cross, who is risen and is exercising kingdom rule. All right, so who is Jesus? First, we start with his identity. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. And so right from the beginning of Mark chapter 1, if you want to take your Bibles, we're just going to be flipping through passages kind of rapidly here skimming over the top. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he's the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, Mark draws on the richness of the Old Testament prophecies by quoting from Isaiah 40. Here's verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That is taken from Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is like trumpets blasting and a spokesman coming out to the edge of the castle saying, get ready, the king is coming. It's a wonderful passage that here's what the king is going to do. Here's what he's going to look like. Isaiah 40, continuing on just from that context, verses 10 through 12. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will send his flock like, or he will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. So here's who Jesus is. He's the coming king from Isaiah chapter 40. And yet he's a tender shepherd who's going to come to his people. He's going to tend to them. He's going to gather them closely to himself. Continuing in Isaiah, verse 15, Behold, the nations are just like a plink, a drop from the bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like find us. So here's Jesus. Prepare the way of the Lord, verse 2 of Mark. He's the one who's coming for his people. He's going to take good care of them. And who is he in comparison to the nations? The nations are just like a drop. They're like dust on the scales. They hold no weight. He's the one from Isaiah 40 who is incomparably greater than the nations. You continue through chapter 1. You get down to verse 11 in chapter 1. And a voice from heaven speaks out and says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The language of sonship is rich in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Well, what do we know about the son? Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Son of God from Isaiah 40 rules the nations. The Son from Psalm 2 has the nations. So, verse 15 of chapter 1. 
Jesus's preaching here. And he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah, the son of God. Here is his kingdom. It's going to be a message of repentance and belief in the gospel. As you continue to go through the gospel of Mark, over and over again, there is testimony to who Jesus is. Later on in chapter one, it's the demons who say, you are the son of God. Later on in chapter five, it's the demons when he goes over to the Sea of Galilee on the other side. The demons speak up and say, what have you to do with us, son of the most high God? Later on in the gospel of Mark, in chapter eight, Peter comes to this moment where he's able to draw upon the richness of the Old Testament and he says, you are the Messiah. You're the coming one that I've been looking for. You're the king. You're the deliverer. Chapter 9. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. A voice speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In chapter 14, a ticked off priest is coming to Jesus and he says, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus responds and says, yep, I am. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, Old Testament language that is talking about the Messiah. Son of man comes from Daniel chapter seven where he comes to the ancient of days God himself, and God gives him in Daniel chapter seven. What does he give him? An everlasting kingdom and all of the nations. So, in chapter 15, at the foot of the cross, here is the first human after all of this, if you will, all of this weight about Jesus as being the Old Testament Messiah, the son who receives the nations, the kingdom that's coming, chapter 15 Right in the middle, here's a pagan Gentile at the foot of the cross. And this pagan Gentile looks up the cross, sees Christ suspended and says, truly, this is the Son of God. So what Mark has been telling us from start to finish about Jesus' identity is he is the Christ, he's the Messiah. So when you read the Old Testament text, folks, this is so good for us. When we read the richness of the Old Testament text and we see the bigness of Christ and what he's going to do for his people, Mark is saying, he came right here. That's Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man. The nations belong to me. So if this is who Jesus is, a very high regal figure who came to our level and meets with us where we are, what should be our response to him? Our response is his message from chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark were this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingly figure is here, therefore, what should we do? Repent and believe in the gospel. And so repentance is that lifestyle change where we're saying wherever we were going with our lives before, now we are turning and we are following Jesus through life. We are holding on to the back of him. We're not going to hold on to other idols that we were following before, other pursuits. We're holding on to Jesus now. And so wherever Jesus is leading us, we're going to follow. He's going to lead you into school, young people. He's going to lead you into work. 
He's going to lead you into family relationships. He's going to lead you into your finances. Everywhere that you go, you are following Jesus. And this is the new repentance in life because before, you weren't following him at all. This is who Christ is. And we should follow him because he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And not only that, but we believe in him. That's our response. Okay, so here's the Messiah, the Son of God. We're following him. What's his mission? His mission, this king, is going to be a deliverer. And he is coming into the world, a mighty strong king, the Messiah. And he is going to deliver people from captivity. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the Son of Man, the regal figure, he came not to be served, He came to serve his people and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we are, were, before repentance had taken place, we're sinners, we're captive to the wrath of God, and Jesus is knowing those people have to be delivered from the wrath of God. Their sins against God are going to damn them to eternal punishment. They need to be delivered. And here comes the king who says, I didn't come to be served. I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for these many. And so he goes to the cross and absorbs the wrath of God and stands in our place as a substitute so that anyone who would repent and believe in him can have the gift of eternal life. So Jesus came He died, and then he rose again, and his resurrection is a stamp of approval on his work that took place at the cross. Yes, it is finished. So he accomplished his mission. And now we come to the end of Mark. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he calls us to do. Here's what he did. We should ask ourselves the question, what now? What are we supposed to do now? Well, Mark concludes at verse 8, and he concludes so abruptly. And this was, the, this was the whole point of the first half of that sermon. It concluded abruptly, and people are thinking, Mark couldn't have finished his gospel that way. Surely it needs a soft landing. Surely it needs an addition. Surely it needs some explanation. Mark is concluding at verse 8, so that we would read verse 8 and ask ourselves, are we responding to Jesus appropriately? Verse 8, the women look at the empty tomb. They go out, they flee from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And you look back at that and you say, ooh, that's not what Mark is calling us to. In fact, he'd be calling us to the opposite of it. What's our response? Our response is fearlessness. Fearlessness. It's quite possible, again, Mark is writing to this church in Rome, right under the thumb of Nero's persecution. And the idea is, hey, Christians, keep your mouths shut. If you keep them open, you're going to get this persecution. And so Mark is writing this gospel and he's coming to this abrupt ending where the women are fearing for their lives and he's saying, hey, is that you? Fast forward 1900, 2000 years. We live in a time when the winds of this anti-Christian sentiment are stirring up. 
it seems like we feel the breeze steadily. And what does that sow in your heart? When you see your culture, your safe zone eroding, and people espousing, there is no God, and if there is, why should we follow him? And those who follow him are foolish. In fact, let's just plunge ourselves into sin. What does that breed in your heart? I think first, anger, and then on the heels of anger is fear. And yet, here is the gospel of Mark telling us, lift your eyes above your circumstances. Lift your eyes and see, here's who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, who has rights to all the nations and have hope in him. And here's the comfort. When Jesus came, he was going outside of his little orbit of, of the, the Jewish culture, going up into Syrophoenicia, going on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, going down to the Decapolis. Who was he reaching there? He was reaching the Gentiles. And today, God is bringing his kingdom through Jesus, the son of God, and this kingdom is going to the nations. And so it's like Jesus is taking a soup ladle and plunging it down into the soup and pulling people out of the carnage of it and saying, you're mine, you're mine. Live with hope. You've been redeemed. You've been ransomed. Don't live in fear. Look at who I am. And so Jesus can tell his disciples in John 16, 33, take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's Christ, he died, he's overcome sin and death. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, in whom we hope. Personally, I hate to see all the immorality, the junk that's going on around us. It seems as though every time we look at the news, we are plunging deeper and deeper into the darkness of sin. And that sin seems to be taking course and having its effect on sort of the structure and the walls of our culture. It's all crumbling. There's no stability. There's no absolutes anymore. What's the knee-jerk reaction? The knee-jerk reaction is fear. How am I going to make it? But here is Jesus, the son of God, the one who rules over the nations. And he would say to you this morning, don't fear. The greatest hope for this world is Jesus himself. And here is how Mark is ending his gospel. Don't fear. Jesus is the true Messiah and the son of God whose kingdom is permeating the nations. There are people right next to you in life who are going to hear the gospel and their lives are going to be changed forever. Jesus is bringing spiritual deliverance to people who will repent and believe and God has placed us in this moment as little lights in his kingdom right now, even 2023 in West Michigan here. So we are people who arrive at the end of Mark 16. We conclude with verse 8. And Mark wants us walking away from this text saying, okay, I see who Jesus is. I see him as the Messiah, the Son of God. I see the world eroding here, but I'm not going to fear. In fact, I'm going to go tell others about him. He is the hope for the nations, the nations that belong to him. So brothers and sisters, that's Mark. 
We come to the end of it, and here is this tone. Do not fear. Trust who Jesus is. Let's pray.